Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Born and raised in a conservative Christian family in southwestern Idaho, Dan Price was homeschooled until he was 12 years old. At the age of 19, he started his own business, and by the time he was 31, he had become a millionaire. Dan Price is the CEO of Gravity Payments, a credit card processing and financial services company. He has recently gained recognition after taking a million-dollar pay cut and raising his company's minimum wage to $70,000. He'll share with us why he decided to do what he did and what effects that has had on his business that's today on connections so today we're talking with the ceo of a company that handles billions of dollars every year dan price made a radical decision one day though he gave himself a pay cut of a million dollars a year in order to increase the salary of every single one of his employees it's an incredible story that we're going to hear today dan your bio says you were uh, a millionaire by the time you were 31. I'm get. Were you born into wealth or what? <laughs> no, no. I grew up in rural Idaho. I'm the fourth of six kids, and neither of my parents went to uh, uh, graduate from college or, or university, as you all say up there. And uh, <laughs> you know, um, I uh, I started um, building my company initially as a junior in high school when I was 17 years old. Uh, launched it when I was 19, and it was a major grind through my 20s to to get to uh, a little bit of traction and success, which uh, which led to some of that. So 17 years old, um, you started Gravity Payments. It's a credit card processing company, correct? Yeah. So when you use your credit card, we're the ones that move the money and keep the data secure. And you know, it's really easy usually as a consumer to use your credit card, but for the the small business that's taking that credit card. Uh, they're paying a, a huge amount of money, sometimes upwards of two, three, four percent, and uh, we um, are trying to make that cheaper. I would say we've gone from making it very, very, very bad to just very bad. So maybe we took <laughs> off a very or two, but right the system—the system has really set up, you know, for the benefit of these huge banks and and huge corporations mm-hmm. like Visa and Mastercard. And we're trying to stick up for the the small uh, merchants. And so initially. We just decided to charge half the margin of all of our competitors. And uh, what we were surprised with was that we got so much business and loyalty via word of mouth referral. And that allowed the company to grow and and become uh, maybe a little bit more successful than we planned. I was wondering, how does a 17 year old get into this? But is that why it was kind of you saw the inequality at work? Yes. It, it, it hit me at a deep level, the fair, the unfairness of it. I was, um, I grew up playing rock music and I was in a band called Straightforward and we recorded an album and an EP and we did tours and we got played on the radio. We were an independent band, so we weren't like super successful, but we had some, some success. And, um, whenever we needed to make money, uh, there was this coffee shop owner that would let us, uh, just sit in the corner and play acoustic covers, but, we had enough of a following that we would pack the place out and she would charge everyone five bucks or whatever. And uh, she told us that she needed to pass on the four or five percent credit card processing fee to us. And, you know, at first I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like just to move money, it can't cost that much. And sure enough, I looked into it and it was her fourth highest cost of doing business after wow. her rent, her her employees um, and her cost of goods sold, her, her coffee, you know, her actual materials and equipment and everything, it was the fourth highest cost of doing business. And that just seemed very unfair. So I just dove in and, you know, if you think of like your phone bill or your cable bill going up and having hidden fees, I basically would just call on her behalf and, you know, 
try to get them to lower the rate. And it turned out that it's so opaque, but it was also kind of oddly negotiable. So huh. I was able to get the rate down for her. She referred me to other businesses and I was able to make a little bit of money doing that to give me the startup uh, funds that I needed growing up in Idaho where there's no investors or entrepreneurs or venture capitalists. I was able to get the, the funds I needed to build my product. And then we were able to launch uh, officially um, about a year and a half later, my freshman year of college when I was 19. <laughs> That's just incredible. And was your brother involved as well at the start? Yes. Um, well, in those early, early days, we were in doing two different things. Um, but, okay. um, yeah, but, but when I was 19, we decided to work together and partner together and, and we started the company together. How, what was that like? Did you get along well or pretty typical <laughs> brother relationship? <laughs> you know, um, it was okay as long as it was clear that he was in charge and he was the big brother <laughs> and I was subservient to him as the little brother, you know, being the fourth of six kids with three older brothers. It was very clear what the pecking order was, and as long as I honored that at every second of every day, we got along great. Well, I'm a big brother, so I understand. Yeah, I was going to say originally, like, the business takes off, but maybe that's not quite the right term you mentioned. It was a lot of grinding and hard work, right? Um, yeah, it really was. I mean, I um, I used to spend my entire day uh, visiting our clients and potential clients, and I would um, usually start visiting clients and potential clients anywhere from 8 to 10 a.m. I would start, and I would usually continue to do that until 6 or 7 p.m., 8 p.m. Uh, with restaurants and everything until the restaurants got a little bit busier once their dinner rush came in. That's when I would call it a day in terms of my customer-facing work. But then I would work most of the night um, doing all the, you know, getting all the merchants actually set up and getting everything situated correctly for them in terms of the back end technology parts of things. And so it was it was a, a difficult time, but it was also so much fun because I got to interact with all these small business owners, which are some mm -hmm. of the most interesting characters on the planet. And not all in good ways, but in general, like small businesses, they make all of our lives better. Right. They, um, they, they risk everything. They work sometimes for the lowest amount of pay. And so that the idea that I got to work with these people every day and serve them and earn their trust and they were happy to see me, that was really, really fun. And so we didn't really make a whole lot of money in the first, you know, four, five, six years, but we had a lot of fun dealing with these small businesses. Well, I love how it started looking out for like the little guy, quote unquote, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, uh, exactly. These small businesses, but so eventually you get so good at what you're doing, you become a big business yourself. Do you remember like the first year the company processed like $1 billion? How I do. So <laughs> I was 22 or 23 wow. and I went public with my age for the first time and we'd become the top credit card processor, at least in Washington state, but I think in the greater United States Northwest. And I went public for, with my age for the first time. And, um, you know, I, before I had gotten some, some media recognition, of course, for my band, but this was the first time where my business was on the front page of the Seattle Times and the Seattle PI and had a profile in Seattle business. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, it started to be a little bit of a, of a concern that people paid attention to in terms of our size because, we, we, we processed over a billion dollars and we were the largest uh, merchant processor in the state of Washington. What was that like at 22? Could your mind comprehend like, well, my company's handling a billion dollars a year right now. Like, 
You know, it was, it was, it, you know, it, you think 22, 23, like you're young and all that, which is true, but I had been working on it for five long years uh-huh. and I had not been working like eight hours a day. I'd been working like 16 hours a day. So it was really just kind of scratching and clawing for every inch of progress along the way. And it was fun to kind of take a step back and, and, and have all the recognition that we had in the small business community start to see a little bit more broadly. It was fun for us because that allowed us to just, you know, continue to spread the message of gravity, which as you said, it really is to stick up for underdogs. It's to, it's to fight the inequality. Like that's always been the thing. It was never about employees at the beginning, you know, employees uh, like myself, you know, we were all making, you know, 12 bucks an hour and had no medical benefits or anything. But for our merchants, it was just like, how can we fight mm-hmm. to help them just save a little bit or get treated a little bit more fairly? And because that message really resonated with me being the fourth of six kids in a rural part of the United States and Idaho, it was really fun to kind of have that underdog story get told. And I think it, it was a, it was a nice moment, but you know, the next day it's kind of on, on to the next one and just continue <laughs> to grind away. So eventually you're making like over a million dollars a year and you have two homes, I think I read, and your company is huge. Were you happy with all that success or were you always just kind of looking to keep working and keep making it better? You know, I was happy, but I'm always happy and I wasn't any happier. And huh. it was weird because all of a sudden I go from having no money to, as you said, making a million bucks a year and being able to, you know, afford, you know, within reason, pretty much anything for a kid from Idaho, from rural Idaho, it's just an unbelievable amount of money. It's like saying like a trillion dollars or something, you know what I mean? It's just like unlimited kind of thing. And what I realized was that extra money was not making me more happy. It wasn't making me more successful for things that matter. And it probably, in hindsight, uh, more than I would like to admit, um, led to a, a, an increased ego, which which takes away from from my happiness. Huh. Um, and so it was like one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's fun and it's exciting because I love my job. I love to work. I love what I'm doing. I love my friends. I love my family. Those were the things that gave me happiness. The money and the extra resources, you know, once I could kind of move out of the unfinished basement in Seattle that I was paying 250 bucks a month for and move <laughs> into an apartment. Um, you know, money over that was, was helpful, but it kind of on the margins and, and didn't really matter to me nearly as much as I would have thought. So eventually you make this huge decision. You, you're <laughs> kind of used to making headlines, I guess. You had already made some, but you made headlines across the world. When you came to this decision, you're going to give yourself a pay cut of over a million dollars a year. You're going to mortgage your two homes. You're going to give up your stocks and savings so that you can pay every employee in your company a minimum wage of $70,000 a year. How did you come to that decision? What sparked that? Well, I had read all of these different books that kept referencing this study that was really interesting by Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton, who both won Nobel prizes. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they're, Daniel Kahneman has a book called, um, uh, thinking fast and slow. And, 
you know, also Michael Lewis wrote a great book uh, uh, about Daniel Kahneman um, and, and some of these realizations. But the field of behavioral economics was really intriguing to me. And then my little brother, who I'm quite close with, he was getting a psychology degree and he was studying behavioral economics a lot. So I was just thinking about it, thinking about kind of the effects. And I kept coming across this study that said well-being or happiness, as some people put it, but I think well-being is more accurate, rises with wages until it doesn't. And there's a point where it doesn't. And that connected with my experience, but it was always like, okay, everyone knows that, but so what? No one's doing anything about it, and so there was not really anything for me to do about it. And the domino that set off all the other dominoes was I was on a hike with a friend of mine named Valerie, And Valerie is a really amazing person. She works really hard. She's very smart. You know, she's not perfect. None of us are perfect, but she's really an incredible person. She had worked super hard her whole life. And she was telling me about how a $200 rent increase was throwing her life into chaos. And I started to think about how many people out there are like Valerie where they actually are very valuable to society. They're serving other people, but they just happen to be in a job that we undercompensate or undervalue. And I I started to get angry at her employer and the system. And then I realized that I, a third of my employees were making less than Valerie. Wow. And they were in a similar situation, similar boat. And the system and the employer in that case was me, but they weren't going to come out and tell me just like Valerie wasn't going to go to her boss and say that this $200 rent increase had, had, turned her life into chaos. And that was a very emotional time. And I was on a hike with Valerie. And by the time we got to the top, I decided to tell her that I was going to implement this $70,000 minimum wage at Gravity. And even if it cost me every penny that I needed, that that I, that, that, you know, every penny I had, I was still going to do it. I was determined to do it. And uh, later on, when I was telling that story to Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, you might know, he, uh, yeah. he, he said maybe I should have come down from the elevation before making such an important decision. <laughs> so that was a fair point. Right. Um, but but I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep for a while because I was like, I have to do it, but I can't. You know, my life's so good. I just need to forget about it. And I just couldn't shake it. And so for me, you know, it was just a, a moment of like diving into the unknown. You know, it's like it's like if you're into you know, extreme sports or, or anything where you have to have faith in something or those like exercise where you fall back and somebody's catching you like, you know, you're going to be OK, but you can't really see where you're going to be OK. And it was like one of those unknown moments of I'm going to completely change my life. I hope that it's for the better for me, but I don't really know about that. But I know it'll be for the better for these other people. And I think, you know, in the end, it'll be worth it. I'm not used to running companies that deal with billions of dollars. Don't you have like a board of directors or other people (laughs) to convince to do this or no? Well, one of the nice things growing up in Idaho is, as I said, there's no investors. And then (laughs) by the time I was uh, 22, 23 and getting all that media attention, I got a call from the largest and most important investor in Seattle. They're called Madrona Venture Capital. And they fund the top companies in Seattle. So, you know, all these companies that are worth a billion dollars that are starting in Seattle, they fund it. In fact, they were the original investors behind Amazon. So they're very revered investors here. And their top person over the past couple decades is a guy named Matt McElwain. The guy's a a genius. He's literally invested in many, many billion-dollar companies. 
And he can, he approached me and he said, Dan, I want to, you're going to be next. You're my next superstar. I'm going to invest some money into you. I need to introduce you to my partners. But I learned about something that I didn't know about, which is preferred stock, which basically gives the venture capitalists, you know, the ability to veto those types of things, as you were saying. And I looked at that and I was like, that does not seem to be in line with what I'm <laughs> trying to do, because if I'm trying to stick up for the little guy yeah. and this venture capital company has their rich investors, their job is to serve their rich investors. They don't, it's not their money. They're renting the money from rich people and they're letting you borrow it and they need to, need to give it back to those rich people with a 10 or 20 or 30 times return. And I was like, I'm going to become part of this system that takes money from the little guy and gives it to rich people. And so I, at 22, turned down Madrona. Wow. And it was difficult because just after that, we went through the crisis of 2008 and the recession, and, and it was a really difficult time. But what it allowed me to do is to have some form of independence where, you know, the board uh, was was me and my brother, and I got two votes, and he got one on, on <laughs> issues that related to these types of things, which is not a good recipe for a good relationship with your older brother probably, but that's the way it worked. And so, you know, I talked to him about it and and he wasn't necessarily in favor, but it was the type of thing that I just felt like I had to do. And so I, I put it into place. But you're right that most companies would have to jump through more hoops. I hope that with me doing it as somebody that didn't have to jump through those hoops, that there are other companies that could follow suit and convince yeah. their boards. And I, I'm starting to see that a little bit, not as much as I would like to. Um, but I had that independence to say hey, the, the whole company was supposed to be to stick up for people that are being unfairly treated. And when I started the company in 2004, that was small businesses. But more and more, people are squeezed. They don't have enough money to pay the bills. And so we need to shift our focus and still have it be 90% on small businesses, but not 100% on small businesses, and have it be 10% or a little bit more also on employees and work and those types of things, because those are the people every day that are, A, helping the small businesses when they call into my company, but B, those are the consumers that the small business needs. And so by spreading around the wealth a little bit more, we can have a more vibrant economy that's better for the small businesses. Uh, so you made this decision. It makes headlines across North America and around the world. You've been called the best boss in the world, but you've also been called a lot of other things I've seen looking <laughs> around. Like uh, Rush Limbaugh called you a communist. Were you surprised? <laughs> like there's a lot of negative reaction to this. <laughs> Well, so I grew up conservative Christian homeschooler, and I listened to Rush Limbaugh from 10 to 1 every day. In fact, huh. I remember – like he had this Beatles song that, that was like mixed with Bill Clinton that went, all your money I will tax from you and so on. And so my parents called me. They're like, Rush is about to do a segment on you. you got to tune in. So they're so excited. Yeah. I tuned in, and he just rips me a new one, and he says that we're going to fail, and he's rooting for us to fail – and it's an important that we fail because we need to be a case study for other businesses about how this type of thinking, sharing the wealth around. <laughs> Keep in mind, Rush Limbaugh makes $200 million a year. He's potentially wow. the most successful financially entertainer of all time. He's up there. He makes $200 million per year. And so it's a threatening concept to him. And even mm. though... It fits into what he claims to espouse of free market ideology and everything. What we're finding is 
it's not so much about free market versus socialism versus communism. It's really about stacking the deck in the favor of the rich and powerful and also giving them a platform to act with impunity. And I didn't realize, but I pierced that veil just a little bit. And so he said we needed to fail. And a year later, Harvard Business School published a case study. And on the top of it was a quote from Rush Limbaugh that this case study was because he said that. And it turned out, you know, different than he said, but it was an interesting way of kind of stirring the pot. And so I have to give Rush a little bit of credit for at least taking the issue on. What are some of the things you've seen from your employees since you've made this change? It's been incredible. We went from having zero to two babies born per year amongst our employee base. Last yeah. year we had 15, and we've had over 50 since the 70K was announced le- uh, about five years ago. So it's been wonderful. We've had skyrocketing uh, first-time home ownership. We went from having almost none to having about a half dozen every year or more. Uh, we saw a doubling or even a tripling of people uh, saving for retirement, which was wonderful. And this was a big one because a lot of people on Fox News and Rush Limbaugh said we were going to teach people to squander their money and ruin their lives. Seventy percent of the people of the company were able to uh, pay down debt or completely become debt free. And so I wow. think it proved two things. We, we also, by the way, tripled as a company in those five years. So we were successful. I think it proved two things. Number one, I think it proved that everybody's lives get better. I, I'm happier than I've ever been. Everybody's lives get better when you spread the money around more and you don't concentrate it with one person. So that's a lesson for society, and that's a positive note from it. But the negative lesson that we learn is most companies will not follow suit because even though we prove that it works, even though we prove that we can be competitive, the vast majority of companies have not done it. And inequality has gotten about three times as worse in those last five years in, in, in many ways in the ratios. And so I think we've proven that you basically need to change the laws to hold the big companies accountable. you got to break up the monopolies. I believe in a universal basic income that's funded by VAT. I believe in guaranteeing both education, opportunity, and medical care to all citizens. If you do that, what would happen is you'd have a lot more small businesses out there like Gravity and even medium-sized businesses. You know, when we have 200 employees, and you would see a lot more competition against the monopolies, the Amazons, the Facebooks of the world that are trying to create a monopoly for everything. And that's why those companies spend so much money on their lobbying efforts to keep that from happening. And Mm -hmm. so it's been a wonderful experience for us, but we're kind of heartbroken that the world has continued to become less and less equal. Second last question. I know I'm not supposed to, you're not supposed to ask people about money, but that's all we've been talking about. How much a year do you make now? <laughs> you know, I was making 70,000 a year for the past five years, but now I make zero. Unfortunately, what? COVID-19 has cost us 55% of our revenue, but Whoa. there's a good story to it. Our employees all stepped up to bail out the company because we were in dire straits. And we had 96% of the, excuse me, 98% of the employees at the company voluntarily reduce their pay on an anonymous basis. So I don't really wow. even know who did and who didn't, and no one did. No one does, but we're going through a crisis right now. We're trying to figure out a recovery, and they gave us that lifeline. And, and out of solidarity, 
myself and, you know, our other kind of C-level executive, we, we went to a zero salary. But we're hoping that short term, we're hoping we can climb our way out of this. The problem is that small businesses in the United States, which is our primary customer base, and we also work with small businesses in Canada, we're down 55% in our revenues tied to those small businesses. So, uh-huh. you know, I'm going to be making zero for a little bit, but I hope to get back to 70 or maybe even a couple hundred thousand someday. But so amazing, you made that change and your employees were in a position they could afford to take those cuts right now because of the change you made. One other thing to slip in, I, yeah. I was going to promote it, but I decided not to because of the crisis. I have a new book out called Worth It, and it tells the whole story if people are interested. I also love engaging with pe- people on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. So I, I try to stay really connected to as many people as possible, and I'd love to meet some of your listeners or hear what they have to say about my story. Okay, wait, how do we get the book then? Normally people are like, well, just go to Amazon, but do you have a different uh, distribution yeah. network or, then? Or- <laughs> Order it from your local bookstore. Our local bookstores are down 70% right now, and they are in dire straits, and what we can do is we can buy from them. So even if you're not going to buy my book, go buy two or three or five books from your local bookstore. You'll read them eventually, and that might be the thing that keeps them in business if we all do that. Wow, what an amazing young man. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. Remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation again, you can always do that by visiting your radio station's website. We'll talk to you again on Connections.